0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at lagunitas.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas, Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant.
1: Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news.
2: I gasped. I was like, oh my god, I've been there, and you can identify with it.
1: For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya
3: Mosley. How did menstrual periods, a natural monthly occurrence for more than half of the population, become so taboo? Periods. Hmm, periods. (laughs) My palms are sweaty.
4: I feel awkward about it because it's really weird. Like, there's a reason if you, like, cut yourself, then it starts bleeding. But I don't really think there's a reason if you just start bleeding from your
3: private. I'm kind of nervous speaking about periods to be honest. Well, I call
4: my period my evil best friend because she always come on time. She give me a hard time. And sometimes I'm happy to see her if you know what I mean. So she's my evil best friend.
3: (laughs) That's a clip from the new documentary Periodical, which chronicles the social and political movement now underway to change everything from unfair taxation of menstrual products to erasing the stigma and shame that has plagued women throughout history. Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, Lina Litepolpite polplite talked with educators, scientists, doctors, lawmakers, and young activists who are traveling the country to advocate for equal access to menstrual hygiene products and the right to reproductive health education. Periodical is now on MSNBC and streaming on Peacock. Lina Litepolpite, polplite welcome to Fresh Air.
2: I am so excited to be here and to talk all about periods. Well, yes,
3: periods are one of those occurrences that, I mean, it, it basically sort of blends into everyday life. What made you decide you wanted to do a documentary about it?
2: One day I was writing my diary, um, writing about this beautiful event that happens to half of the world's population and how we do a lot of things while we bleed. You know, we run marathons. We work and, you know, don't say a peep, uh, even if we're in terrible pain. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful cycle. It feels like, wow, some kind of mystery cycle. And then we're not supposed to talk about it. And not only that, I feel like it's more than not supposed to talk about it. You're really not supposed to talk about it. And so I, I was curious about this. Like, it's not just like... I, we just don't kind of, you know, do you want to go to the bathroom? Yeah, fine. A lot. You know, it's not a taboo to go pee. But something about the tampon that becomes a taboo becomes like, oh, she did not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wanted to poke at this taboo.
3: Yes. Well, I mean, in the documentary, I think one of the folks that you talked with said that throughout history, on one hand, our fertility is seen as our greatest asset in power. At the same time, we devalue menstruation. And it is a topic that we are conditioned not to talk about. So much so, I'm just wondering, were you ever concerned that this would be a topic people wanted to watch a whole documentary about?
2: (laughs) You know, it, it took me six years to make a documentary. And from those six years, Four years were spent finding the right partners who would say, Hell yes, let's talk about this. We must make this documentary because I knew pretty strongly that we have to take a look at this issue. Half of the world's population is uh, directly experiencing it, the other half is indirectly, very clearly experiencing it as well because there would be no uh, child born if a woman wouldn't have her period. Let's face it, it's a sign of fertility. It's yes. a fine of womanhood. Um, and so for me it was more so knock-knock uh, production company, you know, um would would you like to make this with me? No, okay, fine. I'm moving on, finding different producers. And Did you once get I found a lot? Ex- n- not quite rejected, more sometimes ghosted. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, it was about finding the same kind of a rock and roll, let's make it fun. Taboo is here to be smashed. Let's look directly into the bloody abyss. <laughs> I needed to find the same people who thought similarly to me. And once I found XTR, which is production company who made it, we were like, boom, let's go. Let's do it. Let's lean in to it. You know, and once we found MSNBC, it was like green light. Off we go. We literally made it in 13 moons, 13 months. 13 so months. it was fast. Once, once we got the right people on the board, it was really fast.
3: Well, this documentary, um, you use a lot of humor, by the way. It is deep. You talk about perceptions of periods throughout history, religious beliefs about it, research or the lack thereof about women's bodies, and our social condition. One big issue you take on is period poverty, which we've actually heard about more and more over the last few years. What is period
2: poverty? Period poverty is, well, it's an inability to buy Period products because they're too expensive. That's kind of a a blanket statement. And it's also, well, why do we need period products, right? Um, To have... Perhaps perhaps dignified, perhaps uh, an easy way to go to work, to go to school, something to absorb your monthly bleeding so you don't have to, you know, have a bunch of toilet paper rolled up between your legs,
3: literally. This impacts millions of, of women or people who menstruate.
2: A lot of people. I mean, in the US, how many people live under poverty line? How much does a pack of hopefully organic tampons cost? And, you know, if you're a single mom, raising four teenage daughters, counting how much does it cost per month to just have a dignified period for five bleeding people in the house? Now, that's where we start looking at, okay, so we, if pack of tampons is six ninety nine, and I need three of them if I have a heavy flow in, in the cycle, plus there is this tampon tax on it. Oh, interesting, right? So that's what we look at the film.
3: Yeah, you actually follow a group of young people trying to get bills passed to abolish the tax on menstrual products like pads and tampons. I want to play um, a clip of two activists from the documentary talking about their work to abolish the tampon tax, which is a sales tax anywhere from 4 to 7% on menstrual products. Let's take a listen. So what would be like our dream vision for 2022 of the states that flip or that we think could budge a little? Texas, because we've, we've been working on them so long and because right. we've won over the... Um, Controller. Anything women's rights or social justice related in Texas, I think, says a lot and could also be good momentum for anywhere in the South. Everything's bigger in Texas. So. Well, um, Texas
4: collects the most money
5: yeah. annually, I think about $25 million yes. from the tampon tax.
3: You just heard a clip from the documentary, Periodical, about the menstrual period equity movement. And that was uh, two activists, one of them, Madeline Morales, who's part of this cohort of young activists on the front lines of this movement. Now, they were able to help flip that. The Texas tampon tax was actually eliminated this past September, and you followed them as they repealed uh, the tax in Michigan. Can you explain a little bit, though, uh, the argument on why um, the tampon tax is actually unconstitutional.
2: Right. Um, Tampon tax, what the hell is that? That's just extra tax that is right now in uh, 22 states in the United States. It's a sales tax. So whether you're part of the state or not, you get taxed on it. And it is applied to deemed non-essential items. I'll give you an example. Toilet paper: everybody must, you know, have toilet paper for dignified bathroom experience. Uh, absolutely essential, thus not taxed. Somehow menstrual products were deemed by the lawmakers. Non-essential, to have, kind of like deodorant. You know, if you have it, wonderful. If you don't, well, it's not the end of the world. So in a lot of these states, that's what what happened. Uh, This sales tax got applied to menstrual products. And well, as majority of those who bleed would tell you, it's quite essential. It's not a nice-to-have, which is is really interesting to be like, wait, why was this tax... uh, why did this tax happen in the first place for menstrual products? Well, it turns out Laura Strassfeld, who is a wonderful activist and lawyer with Period Law, the one who you just heard in the clip, she started going around and talking with the lawmakers, majority of them, Republicans, probably 99% of them men, and she started collecting information. What's going on here? She found out that most men did not know how menstruation works, and thus it was kind of maybe thought, you know, menstruation is kind of like when you want to go to pee. Mm-hmm. It's You kind of hold it in there, then you go to the bathroom, and you release it all. Wow. I mean, this is it's <laughs> sort of
3: astounding, um, but also not surprising, because you also found that um, sex education... And reproductive health education is something that is not taught. And we do know that. And there's actually a battle um, in many southern states to not teach it. One of the activists asked an interesting question, especially in advance of talking to legislators, because she wondered if lawmakers would conflate or connect conversations about menstrual equity with abortion rights, which is very valid. It's a valid question because we see in places like Florida um, with the don't say period law. Um, one lawmaker in the film actually said that he was dissuaded by other lawmakers to, make, to take this on because it is seen as a liberal cause. I am wondering what you saw when you were following activists and watching them talk with these lawmakers. Once they understood how periods work, were they actually receptive to repealing attacks or thinking about other ways
2: to support women who menstruate? Right, isn't it fascinating? Um, We got to see uh, kind of a spectrum of takes on both period tax and how it relates to abortions. Of course, abortions is such a hot issue and such a difficult issue, complex issue to converse about. But what we've started seeing, especially in Michigan that turned to be kind of a purple state and it was a Democrat-led initiative to remove tampon tax that then became a Republican-led mission to take down the tampon tax. So we started seeing, oh, look, it's becoming bipartisan issue. Suddenly it becomes, uh, once you know enough information, it becomes, oh, okay, this is actually nonsensical. This is, it's true that this tax is unconstitutional. Why is it unconstitutional? Because this, these product, products are necessary for half of the population, and you tax that half of the population where it should not be fair by constitution to tax only a specific gender. Access to birth control,
3: though, is very much connected to this because it's about body autonomy.
2: Such a big conversation and this is where conversation about periods turns revolutionary because um, in majority of uh, educational systems in the United States you probably, uh, first of all boys are kicked out of the class once we talk about menstruation which is so sad to me and uh, you know the health class segregation. I wish simply boys would learn about what's happening with the girls and girls would learn what happens with the boys. We would have so much more empathy, so much more compassion, simply by understanding what's happening in the other body, which I don't inhabit, right? To understand, oh, there's a different story going on there. I love the moment in the classroom in periodical uh, in which we show Chelsea Von Chas, period educator, going to different schools in underserved Uh, mostly African-American schools in Los Angeles, and simply giving a workshop about menstruation and menstrual cycle, in which she talks about, how do you feel? Are you observing your cycle throughout the cycle? Not just when you menstruate, but before, and when you ovulate. And she drops the ovulation bomb. Now why ovulation is uh, somehow a strangely revolutionary thing to talk about Well, if you teach young menstruators about ovulation, you give them a weapon of agency, knowing your body and knowing when you actually can get pregnant. If we teach young girls to do that before they need to go to the abortion clinic, um, they are aware of their own bodies. This is a massive hack to empowerment because then I know when exactly I am fertile and I can do something about it once I know, right? If I'm just taught that my vagina and my uterus are these dangerous places which can always be fertile and thus, you know, like no sex before marriage (laughs) or whatever, you know, and add a a church to it and make it sinful and blah, 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 blah. That's one story. Another story is, look, your body is turning on this beautiful cycle that will happen to you for next 35, 40 years. And every week you're different. Let's learn to surf the cycle of this beautiful menstrual cycle.
3: There are several myths that you take on in this documentary. First is that the time of the month makes us crazy and hysterical. And I want to play a clip from the documentary. It's about the word hysterical, which uh, the root word for hysterical is hysteria. Let's listen.
4: The word hysteria comes from the word hystera, which is Greek for uterus, because people started to say that women were crazy because their uteruses were wandering all over their bodies. Hysteria was not taken out of official manuals until 1980, and it was just this catch-all term that doctors used to let themselves off the hook for diagnoses they were having trouble
3: making. The first ever encyclopedia written by Pliny the Elder in 77 A.D. had an entire chapter devoted to menstruation. He said that menstruation could drive a dog mad, that it could kill crops. If a man had period sex with a woman, he might die. That was a clip from the new MSNBC and Peacock documentary periodical Lena, as you point out, we are socially conditioned to believe that women suffer from extreme emotion to the point that we can't be trusted to make decisions, um, in part for so long because medical research actually did not study the impact of hormones on the body. And we see that as a negative. We often say, oh, it's my time of the month, so or I'm a little crazy because or emotional because it's that time of the month. But what surprises did you learn about the benefit of those monthly hormonal swings?
2: To me, this is where the real juicy part of periodical starts, is looking into taboo, understanding that at least 2,000 years have gone by with that Pliny the Elders, you know, when a woman menstruates, the plants die and dogs howl. You know, we're, we're kind of a deadly but also incapable creatures. And I feel like this movie... We made with now we just have just enough science and data. Thank you for a lot of, of data collection through the apps and whatnot to understand a little bit better what's going on in the body that menstruates. What I find fascinating is we are starting to learn about hormones, we're starting to learn about, you know, collecting of millions and millions of points of data that. We are cyclical beings. These bodies that bleed—that we used to just think, the, we don't know them. They're hysterical. They're crazy." Uh, woman is a mystery. Just leave them alone and don't, you know, don't put them in the scientific research because they screw up the research. Because there's too many data points going on to. We don't know, and we don't understand, and thus, or here's the contraceptive pill, or you're just crazy, you know, eat some Tylenol and go to bed, or whatever. Now, we have a little bit more research. We have a little bit more understanding. So, all of a sudden, we're like, oh, wow, one in 10 women have endometriosis. What is endometriosis? We've been looking at endo for 20 years. We still don't know the exact reason it happens for example, right? But we're starting to understand a bit more and more about the cycle. And so I propose learning to surf this red wave, which means we're different each week, right? We have estrogen and progesterone dancing in our bodies, and it does affect us our moods, how we eat, how we perform, how we even think each week of a month. Now, if you just listen Of very subtle cues of your body, you can learn to live with it instead of against it or just ignoring it.
3: Well, the thing about listening to your body, the way that the medical profession often treats women's issues is through birth control. So it's really interesting to see how the medical industry and pharma seems to use birth control as a solution for any issues a woman might have, as if. The way to deal with it is to erase it so you don't have a period. Is that a newer phenomenon?
2: It's very interesting, right? Because um, the pill really liberated us. You know, it gave us a lot of power to be sexually free. And I salute the pill for that reason. It's absolutely wonderful. However, I believe that nowadays we know more about our bodies, so we don't need to just put um, menstruators on the pill and be like, okay, there's something wrong with you, we're going to put you on the pill, Uh, it's going to remove your acne, it's going to remove your strange menstrual pains, here you go. Right. I feel like we know more, we can do better than that. There's so many more factors now that we can look into instead of just turning off the period because we think period is kind of nuisance and uh, it makes your life easier not to have it or you don't even know that you don't have it. On contraceptives, uh, contraceptive makes your body think that you're pregnant constantly. Mm-hmm. So you don't have an ovulation cycle. Oh, maybe I don't need one. Well, what I'm arguing is It's kind of fun.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That is a new way of thinking about it. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is filmmaker Lena Lite Ploplite. We're talking about her new documentary, Periodical, which chronicles the social and political movements underway to end the taxation of menstrual products and erase the stigma and shame around a woman's menstrual cycle. We'll continue our
0: conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. More at stearnsandfoster.com.
3: Hi, I'm Tanya Mosley, co-host of Fresh Air. Before we get back to our show, we want to take a minute to say thank you so much to our Fresh Air Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. For anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get involved. If you like perks, Fresh Air Plus offers sponsor-free listening and exclusive bonus episodes. If you want to make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite NPR station or stations, that's great, too. We've even had NPR Plus subscribers make additional contributions. No matter how you give, your donation helps us continue to bring you news and shows across the NPR network. If you value what we do here, please give today at donate.npr.org slash fresh air, or explore NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. Thanks. Today, we're talking to Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Lena Lite Ploplite about her new documentary, Periodical, which chronicles the social and political movement underway to lift the shame of a woman's menstrual cycle. Her feature-length directorial debut, Advanced Style, about stylish women in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, is currently streaming on Amazon. Periodical is now on MSNBC and streaming on Peacock. A lot of us know about toxic shock syndrome, which can happen basically when you keep a tampon in too long. But in the early days of tampons in the 1970s, a significant number of women
2: died using them. Why was that happening? Yeah, I don't know if many people know this, but um, in 1970s, Procter & Gamble created a super tampon. And they thought, wow, would not be convenient. Imagine putting a tampon in once for all
3: of your cycle. So if you bleed your entire cycle, you would just have one tampon inside of you.
2: Sounds amazing, sounds so easy, especially when we're conditioned that this period is the most nuisance thing ever, so why not to stick something in there that absorbs all of your blood for all of those days? Turns out it's a horrible idea. Turns out that it's like a bacteria breeding and toxic shock causing idea. And so at first, uh, they didn't know what was happening, but women started dying And uh, at first, Procter & Gamble did not take responsibility, said, oh, the the users are not using it right. Scientific community figured out that it's a toxic shock syndrome. Uh, It's a new disease that happens if you hold tampon or this super tampon inside of your body for too long, and it's extremely deadly, and it's very fast. So it was a huge red flag in the community, you know, for everyone who bleeds, and also understanding that, in order of serving convenience, serving this idea that period is nuisance and dirty and this thing that we wish wouldn't happen, women started dying. This is
3: important to talk about today because while that is not happening, you explore the chemicals used to make pads and tampons more absorbent and fresh smelling. There are chemicals used today in the products that we use. And there is really no regulation on what chemicals can be used.
2: Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Um, I find it in general. It's part of that same conversation of periods are gross, periods are weird, periods are something to be hidden, and thus can we make it smell like a rose bouquet? Or as comedians in the film say, <laughs> it smells like a cheap candle. <laughs> Does it actually cover the smell of menstruation?
3: As you note in the documentary, the U.S. has never really offered comprehensive sex education. How does that compare to other countries? Is this a universal issue?
2: Oof, that's a very good question. Uh, And I wouldn't dare to make a worldwide statement about it. The whole point in the film was to focus solely on the United States. Why? Because it felt easy to be like, look, in India, women are not allowed to cook for their husbands when they're menstruating. Look, in Kenya, girls are missing school because they don't have supplies or running water to have menstrual products. And then we turned around and we saw that in New York City and Los Angeles, the same issues are true. And um, apparently one in five girls has missed school because of our menstruation in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. In the United States. So I like not to exotifying the issue of, of um, uh, period poverty, of in general issues with uh, bleeding bodies and access to products around the world, but looking directly into the United States and to the metropolis too, into literally Los Angeles and New York where we think you know we've got everything uh, <laughs> figured out and be like, oh yeah, stigma is alive and well. And also, stigma, once you shine a light on it, has a very short lifespan. Because if we all suddenly start talking about menstruation, guess what? Our daughters won't have the stigma attached to it. So it's very fast, very quick that we can nix this stigma. We just need a critical mass of talkers, uh, celebrators, <laughs> I don't know if I can say that, <laughs> people who celebrate their menstruation, people who are loud about their tampon needs or their cramps or their PMS or, for God's sakes, the menopause. The menopause, <laughs> which we'll get to for
3: sure. You actually visited members of the Lakota tribe. What did you learn about how they perceive a woman's cycle?
2: Oh, my. Um, Visiting Native Americans and sharing their story uh, was one of the most important and my favorite scenes in the whole film. Why? I've always known that Lakota has a Ishnati ceremony, which is a four-day ceremony when uh, a girl gets her first period. And I thought, imagine that in the United States, where majority of us live in this kind of a shame of menstruation and, you know, not talk about it and hide your tampon in the sleeve as you go to the bathroom, or do you have a tampon? Whispering in a, you know, corridor with your um, colleagues. Here there was... People today that we're not only recognizing the moon cycle, uh, but also saying that a woman is closer to the creator, to God, when she menstruates. Mm -hmm. To the point of Medina Matonis in the film speaks about the ceremony, how they're bringing back this beautiful ceremony, and how they are aware of their moon cycles. And you, when you menstruate, you you should be careful what you're talking about because every word out of your mouth goes directly into the God's ear. Now, what a flip of understanding about the cycle. I really wanted to showcase that, that there is ways to celebrate menstruation and the menstruating body. And it's happening today in the United States of America. I want to go back a little bit to
3: some of the myths that you encountered, because I want to know if you learned anything that you were just really surprised by, because you laid out so many of them, one being that period blood attracts bears, another one that... (laughs) menstruating women shouldn't go swimming in the ocean because they might attract sharks. Was there, was there a myth that you encountered that you were surprised that people still believed?
2: Um, my friend shared that in Spain, her grandmother wouldn't let her make mayonnaise when she bleeds because mayonnaise wouldn't curl or whatever mayonnaise needs to do. Uh, grandmother was convinced that menstruation affects your ability of making mayonnaise. That was fascinating. In uh, uh, in Ecuador, I learned that women are not allowed to make sombreros because sombreros, the hats, the, the straw hats, yes. take a long time to make. And apparently women weave their menstrual ups and downs within the tightness or, or looseness of how they knit the sombreros. Mm. And thus there was a prevailing idea that women are not good hat makers. Our guest today is Emmy Award-winning
3: documentary filmmaker Lena Lite Ploplite. We're talking about her new documentary periodical, This is Fresh Air. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in.
0: We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. These days, news comes at you
3: fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stamps.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
3: Now, Lena, you also delve into the use of period apps to help track our cycles, which have been very helpful for women to connect to themselves and understand their bodies, as you mentioned earlier. But that information can be and is often sold to third parties. Why aren't they protected under HIPAA laws, if we're basically inputting our private medical information into
2: these apps? That's a great question. Right. So HIPAA is only for your doctors and for your nurses. Um, I think apps just don't fall under such uh, act, such a protection. So any app in the United States does not have any rules or regulations about how they deal with your data. Yes. and so so what I've been telling everyone and there's so much so many questions about this it's it's I find that um, tracking your period tracking your moods and uh, your sexual drive and your tiredness and the amount of your blood and amount of your discharge is crucial to get to know your body and to start surfing the menstrual wave if you will um, how to do this surely there are a lot of apps that's the easiest way to do it is to to start tracking it but here's the conundrum that any american-based united states-based apps well they just come out from silicon valley you know they are part of you know free marketplace and so they can say yes we love your data we would never ever dare to show it to anyone else And yet there is nothing out there to actually prevent them to do so. Right.
3: And this is more than just about selling ads in your information, though, because there is this real fear, especially in states where abortion is banned, that this information can be used against you
2: right, and that sucks. And thus we can say, you know what? Thank you, apps, but no thanks. And so please use uh, European Union-based tracking devices and apps, like um, I've been telling everyone to use Clue, C-L-U-E, which is based in European Union and thus protected by European Union privacy laws. So you're good. So you're not, you don't need to stress about that. I feel like even if you're in super blue state uh, in which you can get abortion, um you probably still wouldn't want to, you know, get your Instagram app about some brownies or baby shoes because you marked yourself not bleeding for a few months. You know, it just doesn't make one feel um, safe. Can you talk more about how
3: the data from those tracking apps can be used against women?
2: The data could be used in a different ways if you are not protected by the privacy laws. Um, the data could be used simply by it being sold to third parties, it being sold to you know, your Instagram ads and whatnot, um, but it also could leak to governmental bodies. You've put in, uh, I miss my period, I missed my period again, kind of a thing. So the app knew that you were pregnant. Well, there was actually a mm -hmm. case
3: out of Mississippi with a woman, uh, Latisse Fisher is her name. She was charged with second degree murder after she lost her pregnancy at 36 weeks. And prosecutors used her online search history, which included a search on how to buy abortion pills online. That's not an app, but it is using technology to find out information. That information is tracked.
2: Yes, and it's heartbreaking and outright scary.
3: Let's talk about menopause for a minute. Um, Oh, love it. (laughs) Women experience shame and stigma for periods during their fertile years, and then they're all but forgotten when they get to their menopausal years. Why don't doctors seem to be universally proactive in giving menopausal women options and relief? I mean, we learned from a doctor in your documentary that menopausal women can have up to 200 symptoms.
2: Most fascinating, isn't it? Well, menopause means you are one year since your last menstrual cycle. Right. And it has to be consecutive one year, consecutive 12 months since your last menstrual cycle, which means you won't get your menstrual cycle again, which means welcome to the new you. Welcome to the matriarch years is what I like to call it. (laughs) But before we go to that amazing boom, you know, marker in time, uh, entering the next stage of your life, There is this thing called perimenopause, which majority of menstruators don't don't even know what the hell does that mean. Perimenopause is how we beautifully explained through the experts in the film, is kind of like puberty in reverse. It's those last years of your period. If you remember when you entered your period, first few years were kind of funky, and zits, and anger, and crying, and random periods, uh, that sort of thing. Well, they say that it can also happen on the other book end of your cycle, and thus it is normal, and thus 200 symptoms, uh, sometimes including, you know, hot flashes, or night sweats, or forgetfulness, or rage. Um, Naomi Watts shares her wild perimenopause story in the film we're gonna get to okay so we're gonna get to Naomi
3: Watts's story she shares that she experienced menopausal symptoms in her 30s the average age to start menopause is around 51 52 let's listen to her explain
5: my cycle um it came late and it ended early but 36 seemed super early, and there were all these women having babies in their late 40s. Um, So, but I did go to the doctor, and he said, yeah, it looks like you're getting close to menopause. Now, there was no mention of perimenopause. There was no, I don't even think that word existed. You know, there was nothing said to me about it in, in the doctor's office. Certainly no friends were using that. Um, would I would crack jokes about having estrogen dips to sort of see if how, oh, I'm, I'm having that too. You know, let's just see if that sparks up the conversation. And it was sort of met with crickets, nothing. My friends were clearly either not there in that phase of their life or they weren't willing to talk about it.
3: That's actress Naomi Watts talking about her experience with menopause for the documentary Periodical. Lena, um, there's a lot at stake, as you mentioned earlier, um, for women to speak about this because there is so much expectation um, put on being youthful, especially in Hollywood. I think it's really interesting that you're doing this reframing because um, you're basically saying, okay, once all of those hormones are gone, a lot of women are reevaluating their lives, a lot of time for the better. What did people tell you about that time of life in this reframing?
2: (laughs) Yes. um, First of all, I adore Naomi Watts and the fact that she started speaking... Um, out loud about her perimenopause and menopause experience which aligned so well with our timing to have her in our film and just to hear a really human story that even the celebrity of the caliber of Naomi Watts still didn't have the answers she wanted which proves to you that this issue is very real and it's not just about specific parts of the population. Literally everyone going through perimenopause and menopause find themselves a little... Lost, scared, and nobody to talk to, which is thankfully changing rapidly because of these women are speaking out. How freaking cool! Like we are literally living the revolution of menopause. <laughs> Lena, thank you so much for this
3: conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Tanya. This was really, really, really fun.
3: Lena Lite Polpitez's new documentary is called Periodical. It's now streaming on Peacock. Coming up, book critic Maureen Corrigan shares her list of the 10 best books of 2023. This is Fresh Air.
5: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up.
4: Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one.
0: Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday,
5: even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Today, people are working to innovate and do more in their workdays, but coming up with fresh ideas and quick responses can be tough. Introducing Grammarly Go, a product offering personalized generative AI communication assistance that will change the way you write. With just a few clicks, Grammarly Go can ideate, compose, and rewrite thoughtfully, accelerating your productivity and unlocking your creativity.
1: Maureen Corrigan's
3: list of the 10 best books of 2023 is ready, and she says she only wishes
4: the list could be longer. If you were to judge a year solely by its books, you'd have to say 2023 was outstanding. Here's my list of the year's 10 best books. Let's start with nonfiction. In her charged memoir, How to Say Babylon, Saphia Sinclair summons up her childhood in Jamaica and charts her gradual revolt against her Rastafarian upbringing. To call that upbringing strict would be like calling water wet. Sinclair's father, a celebrated reggae musician, dictated his daughter's diet, education, and appearance. Dreadlocks, no jewelry, and figure-obliterating clothing. The pull of poetry, along with Sinclair's own innate resolve not to become a subordinate wife, someone, as she says, ordinary and unselfed, carried her into a wider world. Monsters by Claire Diederer is cultural criticism at its most incisive and wry. In this slim book, Diederer, who started out as a film critic, dives into the vexed issue of whether art created by men and some women who've done monstrous things can still be considered great. Should geniuses like Picasso, Diederer asks, get a hall pass for their behavior? David Gran, whose 2017 book, Killers of the Flower Moon, is now a film by Martin Scorsese, wrote a gripping new work of narrative history this year. Part Robinson Crusoe, part Lord of the Flies, The Wager tells the tale of a British ship of that name that broke apart off the coast of Patagonia in 1741 some of the stranded sailors patched together a rickety vessel and sailed 2,500 miles to Brazil. But then a second group of sailors from the wager miraculously surfaced and the official survival story became much more complicated. On to fiction. Just the title of Laurie Moore's latest novel tells you how singular and strange her vision is. I am homeless if this is not my home intertwines a Civil War story with a contemporary tale in which a man takes the body of his deceased beloved on a road trip. Moore here movingly literalizes the desire to have some more time with a loved one who's died. Up with the Sun by Thomas Mallon is a novel about showbiz strivers in mid to late 20th century America. It zeroes in on the real-life actor Dick Coleman, who for a time was a protege of Lucille Ball's. Mallon, whose novel Fellow Travelers, about closeted gay men during the McCarthy era, is now a TV miniseries, is one of our most evocative and, blessedly, one of our drollest novelists. The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride is mostly set in the historically Black and immigrant Jewish neighborhood of Chicken Hill in Pottstown, Pennsylvania in 1925. When the state decides to institutionalize a 12-year-old black boy who's been branded deaf and dumb, a group of neighbors violates boundaries of color and class to save him. If you think that premise sounds sentimental, you haven't read McBride, who contains the chaos of the world in his sentences. Talk about contained chaos. Catherine Lacey's novel, The Biography of X, is the story of a widow during what she calls the boneless days of her grief, trying to piece together the truth about her wife, an artist who called herself X. Real-life figures like Patti Smith and the New York school poet Frank O'Hara trespass onto the pages of this edgy and unexpectedly affecting novel. Paul Harding's This Other Eden is inspired by true events on Malaga Island, Maine, which was once home to an interracial fishing community. After government officials, under the sway of the pseudoscience of eugenics, inspected the island in 1911, Malaga's residents were forcibly removed. Harding's novel about this horror is infused with dynamism, bravado, and melancholy. Absolution by Alice McDermott tells the story of Tricia, a shy newlywed in 1963 who arrives in Vietnam with her husband, an engineer on loan to Navy intelligence. There she meets Charlene, a strawberry blonde dynamo who conscripts into her army of do-gooders. McDermott, one of our most nuanced novelists, Suggest parallels between the women's insistent charity and the growing American military intervention in Vietnam. Justin Torres's Blackouts won this year's National Book Award for Fiction. At its center is an extended deathbed conversation between two gay men about sex, family ostracism, Puerto Rican identity, and the films they love like Kiss of the Spider Woman, an inspiration for this novel. Torres's title, Blackouts, refers to the blacking out of pre-Stonewall accounts of queer lives, what the younger of the two characters here describes as stories of something grand, a subversive, variant culture, an inheritance. These books of 2023 are outstanding. But so, too, have been the efforts to ban books this year. Here's to reading widely and freely in the new
3: year. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. You can find all of her year-end recommendations on our website at freshair.npr.org. And to browse more than 380 titles recommended by NPR staff and critics, visit Books We Love at npr.org slash bestbooks. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, comedian and actor Kenan Thompson. He's best known as the longest-running cast member on the sketch comedy series Saturday Night Live and for starring in Nickelodeon shows like All That and Kenan and Kel. His new book, When I Was Your Age, Life Lessons, Funny Stories, and Questionable Parenting Advice from a Professional Clown, takes readers behind the curtain of his life and career with stories he's never shared before. I hope you can join us. (laughs) To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley.
1: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, A dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Betterment. Confusing eye contact with a mysterious stranger is never chill. But Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.